0: Well, how about a short quiz as we begin today? In honor of school starting for our kids, tweens, and teens soon, I have a quiz for you kids, you children and tweens and teens. It's just a one-question quiz, uh, but it's an important one. And so I want you to listen up. Here is the question, other than the death and resurrection of Christ, which miracle of Jesus is most often seen in the Bible? Which miracle is most often seen? You can just just shout it out, kids. Any ideas? Louder? I hear some people say healing, what else? Someone shout it out so loud? I'm hearing a lot of things. Here is the answer. The answer is the feeding of the 5,000. It's one of two miracles that we're going to look at today. The feeding of the 5,000 is actually the only miracle during Jesus' ministry that's recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. A good afternoon reading assignment, even today, would be to read each of those accounts one after another because what they'll do is they complement each other. They'll add a few more details to the story. So Matthew 14, Mark 6 Luke 9 and John chapter 6. We're going to focus on John 6 today, but I'll reference the other ones later. So Mark 14, or I'm sorry, Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 9 and John chapter 6. Have a good afternoon read and go through each of those accounts of the feeding of the 5,000. Well, so far in the Gospel of of John, Jesus has been leading and the disciples have been following. But here in John chapter 6, we have a little bit of a a change of trajectory. Jesus has been doing these signs, but now we're going to see that he's going to bring the disciples in, and the disciples are going to have an important role in the sign. They're going to be working along with Jesus. They're going to start to participate in the sign ministry with Jesus. So remember, these signs that we see through the Gospel of John, these seven signs, two of which we'll see today, but these seven signs are meant to bring us to belief. They're meant to bring the original readers and us today to belief in Jesus as the Savior. There's going to be a day, though, A day when Jesus has gone physically from the disciples and he's equipping the disciples now in these moments to lead the ministry. So in the sermon titled, The God Who Provides, which is our sermon for today, we're going to see two miracles and we're going to see two points. So if you're taking notes, here's our outline. Number one, Jesus cares. And number two, Jesus prepares. Jesus cares and prepares. A nice little rhyme for our first Friday back here in Dubai. The first point's going to be a lot shorter, but I'm going to come back to it um, even as we look at the rest of the sermon because they overlap a little bit. And so what we're going to see in both points and in our entire passage is that all along, we see that Jesus is our provider of sustenance. He's our provider of ministry strength. He's our provider of peace. And he's one who provides. And his provision is filled with sovereign surprises. We're going to see many sovereign surprises today and in the days to come in how he provides. And the first way we see that is in how he cares. So that's the first point this morning. Jesus cares. Now, we know from the context of the Gospel of Mark that Jesus and his disciples, they were going to a quiet place uh, to rest after ministry. But a crowd recognized them on the water, and they were chasing the disciples and chasing Jesus um, on land as the boat was moving across. Verse 1 here in John tells us where the men were going. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberius. They were crossing the sea. At around the year AD 20, Herod Antipas founded a city on the western shores of the sea and named it Tiberius Caesar after the Roman Emperor. It took a little bit of time, but pretty soon that lake was also called Lake Tiberius. So what we have here is same lake, two names. Galilee and Tiberius. Well, verse 2, the crowd in Galilee had witnessed the healing signs. They had witnessed these amazing miracles. They were in awe of Jesus, and they were following them. In verse 3, Jesus and, and his disciples, they've been busy in ministry. They've been busy at work, and so they go up a mountain. They're going to take a ministry break. They're going to take a sabbatical, a little bit of a rest. And then verse 4 tells us all this is taking place during the Passover. This is an important note. This is a Feast of the Jews, and we'll see a little more about it in a minute. But it was a celebration of God preserving Israel's firstborn during the Exodus. But quickly, their quiet time on top of this hillside or this mountain was not so quiet. Look at verse 5. This is Jesus lifting up his eyes then and seeing what a large crowd was coming toward him Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? Mark's gospel tells us that eventually the men go ashore and Jesus in compassion. Even after teaching long time already and even after ministering already, they're, they're wanting their break. They're going up the hillside. They're going up the mountain. They get off the boat and Jesus teaches them and he teaches them until late. He has compassion for them. He's not perturbed by their intrusion. And in fact, he actually cares about their hunger and weakness. And so Jesus goes to Philip, which was um, um, a good disciple to go to because Philip was from that area. He was from nearby Bethsaida. And so Jesus asks Philip, what store is open right now? Is there a bakery on Zomato with good ratings that we can stop by tonight? The other Gospels give us more details, but the disciples, we see, they're ready just to send everyone home without any food, without anything, But Jesus won't let them. It's a remarkable compassion, not because it's an incredible miracle of healing or an incredible miracle of raising someone from the dead. And we'll see that in John chapter 11. We'll see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. No, it's not an incredible miracle because necessarily of the healing, but it's incredible because he's showing his love for the people in something as ordinary as hunger. Now, I love the tender mercy of Christ here. I love this picture. I mean, do you feel the sensitivity and care of Jesus? Do you see his gentleness? Fellow Christian, Jesus cares about you. He cares about you you. Here, merely the physical weakness of the crowd draws out his compassion. And we know that word for compassion. is that in his innermost being down in the depths of his heart, Jesus cared. Jesus loved them. What about their hunger? Who was going to feed them? No, oh, friend, Jesus cares about your pain. Even what might seem trivial to you right now, I've talked to a number of people over the years in church ministry who tell me, oh, pastor, what I'm going through is nothing compared to what you're going through or what this person's going through or, or I can't pray for this because it's, just, it's not big enough or it's not important enough or maybe God just, maybe he just doesn't care or maybe I prayed too long already and nothing's changed or maybe it's just too, too simple. Oh, friend, God cares. He cares. He cares about every aspect of your life. So friends, are there any needs this morning that you're hesitant to bring to the Savior? He says, come to him. If you're hurting, tell him. If you need something, tell him. If you're sad, tell him. If you're scared, lonely, or overworked, tell him. If you have trouble sleeping, tell him. If you're depressed, tell him. If you don't know how to pay for your rent or pay for your lunch, tell him. He's our compassionate Savior. He loves you. He cares about you. He cares about the most ordinary and what might seem like minute details in your life. Jesus cares. Well, that's the first point. I told you it would be short, but again, that reality is going to permeate the rest of the passage because even in just a minute, we'll see how his care is manifested in this first and second miracle. So Jesus cares, but he also prepares. That's the second point this morning. Jesus prepares. Look at verse 6. This is Jesus. He said this to test him, meaning Philip, for he himself knew what he would do. All along, Jesus had a plan. John writes this comment, and so, just to make sure, we're 100% sure that Jesus is in control, that this wasn't a surprise to him what he was going to do. No, it was a test. That might seem odd at first, that Jesus would, would bring a test to the disciples. But we all know that tests or exams or Pastor Dave's quizzes are meant to help us learn. This is why in all schools there is some type of examination. It's to help us to grow, to to learn. At the Gulf Theological Seminary, GTS, we have tests. Now, this might not be GTS, but it certainly is JTS, Jesus Theological Seminary. And his exams are a little bit different. There's There's no laptops. in in, in this seminary. Uh, There is the Old Testament, but there's not a a, a textbook um, on how to do the ministry in the ways that we have today. It's a completely different school, and Jesus is going to use real-life situations to help these men grow. Because, Because again, remember, all this is preparation. Jesus is training the 12. There's going to be that day that he dies, resurrects, and then ascends into heaven. And these men will be left to lead the church without Jesus there. And so he's preparing them. And in Mark's gospel, it's really clear that these guys don't quite get it yet. Jesus sits in in the midst of saying to feed them. uh, These disciples are trying to send the people away. And so in Mark chapter 6, verse 37, The disciples are sending them away, and Jesus says, stop, you give them something to eat. Disciples, you give them something to eat. Don't let them leave. You feed them. You serve them. You minister to them. Now think about this. This was no small task. Jesus was saying, hey, I know there's no food. (laughs) I know. I know there's no food, but feed them. Now this was an impossible test for these men to produce food on their own. But friends, this is the ministry. It's impossible to do on our own. It's, only, it's doing only what God could do through us. Redeemer Church, we can't do our ministry on our own. And we've seen that, haven't we, these last 17 months with viruses, with, with, with meeting facility issues, with not being able to meet, with a variety of other struggles Oh, we can't do this on our own. And if that's not clear yet, it should be. We are helpless on our own. Our ministry is an impossible test, just like this one here. But here's a question I want to ask all of us in our church today. Here's a question I want to ask you individuals today. What are you doing in ministry right now that demands God's intervention to be fruitful? What are you doing right now in ministry that demands God's intervention in order to be fruitful? Do you have an answer to that question? If not, you may be serving in your own strength. Are you, are you serving in some way that's stretching you, some way that you're thinking, it's impossible if this happens? Are you, are you sharing your, your faith? Are you sharing the gospel with that person that you think there is no way they will ever come to faith? Are you studying the Bible with with people who, who are maybe difficult? Are you taking steps of studying? Are you taking steps of teaching or even preaching? Are you taking steps of service in ways that would stretch you, maybe ways that you're even afraid? Are you attending that group? Maybe you're afraid to step in through that door. Maybe you're afraid to minister to your kids and disciple them or have that hard conversation with them. Or maybe as a husband and wife, Whatever it is, are you working toward what seems impossible? See, we can't wait for God to show the way and give the resources. We go and trust him by faith now. Now think about the whole Old Testament. Noah, make the ark. (laughs) Then I'll show you what you're going to use it for. Abraham, leave your home. Go away from here. Then I'll show you where you're going to go and give you a child. Moses, go to Pharaoh. Then I'll turn your staff into a serpent. Then I'll let you do miracles. Joshua, why don't you go to Jericho? Don't fight. Why don't you walk around the walls of Jericho a few times, yell out a bit, and blow some trumpets. Then I'll give you the city. David, just take what you got. Go to Goliath. I'll give you victory. No, we have to go by faith. God will give us the strength, but we have to keep our eyes on him and go in faith and minister in faith. And so Redeemer Church, are you attempting any faith-stretching ministry right now? Or are you waiting for God to show you how he'll do it first? No, Jesus tells us to go and make disciples of all nations. That's the mission of our church. So if Pastor Dave ever has a quiz where I ask you, what is the mission of the church? I hope it's clear. I hope it's clear because we talk about it all the time. The mission of our church is to make disciples of all nations. We take that as our mission because it's Jesus' mission for the church. And so we take it as the mission for our church. And that mission, friends, is impossible. That is impossible on our own, to make disciples of all nations, for hearts to be changed for the least streets to come to faith in Christ, for churches to be planted in different languages, for theological schools to be started, for people groups to be changed. Oh friends, we can't do that on our own. It is impossible. It is faith stretching. We have no hope on our own, but you know what friends? We're going to keep going. In God's strength, we're going to keep going, and we're going to keep going, and we're going to keep going. Seeking to plant churches, seeking to share the gospel, seeking to equip you, and seeking to send you out. Because on Fridays, Lord willing, here in Dubai, we're going to come and gather. But then the rest of the week, we're going to go and scatter. We're going to go and scatter, and we're going to be the church, and we're going to do impossible things in God's strength alone. We have no hope on our own. These disciples here, they had no hope on their own. I mean, look at Philip's answer when he looks to himself, verse 7. 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So Philip, he's checked on the financial situation. Maybe he's gone to Judas, the bookkeeper, and that's all they have. Not enough money. We can't do it. Now, one denarius was the normal day wage for a laborer. So 200 denarii would be about eight months worth seven, eight months' worth of salary for an ordinary person. So that's no small sum of money. But thousands for dinner? Something doesn't add up here. Philip has resulted simply to business calculations and nothing more. So another disciple, Andrew, jumps into the scene. Verse 9, hey, Jesus, um, I got something. We we got a boy here, and, and he's got something. Five barley loaves and two fish. Okay, now. Let me just stop. Let me tell you a little bit about these barley loaves, just so we're on the same page here. This is how you would make a barley loaf. You would take barley, you would smash it up, you would squish it up, you would pound it, uh, you would grind it together, and you'd make basically a tasteless granola bar. That's what it was like. Uh, Here's what we don't have here is we don't have those delicious pieces of hot bread from Arus Damascus, Indira. This is not the bread from Wafi Gourmet that you dip into your hummus and it's pure bliss. That's not what we have here at all. This wasn't even a protein bar from the pharmacy. This was a tasteless, boring, barley granola bar. Maybe five pieces worth. The bread of the poor of the poor. And the fish, make no mistake, this boy had not stopped by the Dubai fish market on the way to see Jesus. He wasn't holding two big kingfish or some hamor he caught off the coast here. The word, right, the word in the text is for a small fish, an insignificant fish. Think sardine, think anchovy. Now, kids, do you know what an anchovy is? You know what an anchovy is? It's a little gross fish that some interesting people like to put on pizza. But kids, don't do it. Don't ever do it, I promise. It is disgusting. Stick to cheese pizza, and life will be okay. But that's what we have here. We have some pieces of a boring barley granola bar and a couple or a few anchovies. That's what we have. Andrew is right. What are they for so many? Jesus tells the guys, okay, okay, okay. Philip, Andrew, the guys, you guys have done enough. Just go ahead and get everyone seated. This place had grass, green grass. This is Zabil Park. This is Creek Park. And 5,000 men were there. In this culture, only men would be counted for official uh, census. And so there were likely men, women, and children present. And so here, this could have been 15 or even 20,000 people. What a huge crowd gathering together. My seminary president always called this miracle the feeding of the 5,000 plus. It was a huge gathering. This is the Coca-Cola Arena at City Walk, completely filled, standing room only. Mark's gospel says that they're grouped into fifties and they're grouped into hundreds. And then in verse 11, here's the actual sign. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. I'll well, think about this. Jesus created fish, which never swam in the sea. Jesus made bread that had never been baked in an oven. And there's only one concession stand, one restaurant, one chef, one source, Jesus, but he feeds all of these people. Now, how does he do it? How does he do it? Well, we don't know. We don't know what Jesus did. We don't know how it happened. Uh, We don't know what went on behind the curtain, behind the scenes. The focus here in this miracle is the lavishness of the buffet. It wasn't just a small fish and and a pita bread. These hungry people were satisfied. They were full. This was an unlimited buffet. It was the extra value meal. It was the third shawarma. It was the panseat pot all to yourself. And my wife, Gloria, she tells me I always talk about biryani in my sermons. But you've got to have seen those huge pots of biryani, right? I mean, this is the biggest pot of biryani in the world. This food fed everyone. Everybody ate and everybody ate and everybody ate. Perhaps there was a one-time free gluttony pass for everyone that night. Verse 12, it was only after they had eaten their fill. It was only then, only when they had eaten their fill are the disciples ordered to gather up the leftovers. Verse 13, so they gathered them up. Filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Jesus cares, but he also prepares. This is a ministry internship for the disciples. They've been watching Jesus. Now they're serving alongside Jesus. Imagine how long it would have taken, taken for the disciples to feed everyone. Imagine how many trips the disciples would have taken up and down the Galilean countryside, passing out the bread, passing out the fish to 20,000 people. I mean, what was going through their minds as they were doing that, as they were coming back to Jesus to get more, passing out more, coming back to Jesus to get more, all those trips? How long for the disciples to realize that it's Jesus who gives them all that they need for ministry? that Jesus is the one who gives them all their ministry strength, that Jesus is the one who provides. See, they're being taught that their ministry fruit would not be as a result of their own talent or their own efforts, but that all of it would come from him, an abundance of fruit. Do you see this? Jesus provided more than enough. They had leftovers. I love leftovers. Who doesn't love leftovers after a great meal? There's now more in leftovers than they had in the beginning. Do you see that? Some granola bars, some anchovies, and now there's 12 baskets full of leftovers after everyone had eaten their fill. Unbelievable, 12 baskets. What does is, what is the number 12 remind you of? Any ideas? Yeah, the 12 tribes of Israel. Interesting, it's no coincidence here. That number is important. It means Christ is sufficient for all Israel. All can come to him. In the feeding of the 4,000-plus that we see in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, we see Gentiles there being served. And in the end, the disciples have seven baskets left over. In the Bible, seven is a number of completeness. So perhaps those numbers are signaling to us that the gospel is to go out to both the Jews and the Gentiles, and that all can come to him. All are free to come and be saved in Christ Jesus, that that Jesus is the creator, that he is the sustainer, that he is the sovereign one of all, that he is the author of all salvation. He's the one who's come into the world of whom the prophets pointed to. Look at verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. See, this is looking back to Deuteronomy chapter 18 and the promise of a prophet similar to Moses. While we focused on the miracle, we can't miss that Jesus is the greater Moses. Think back to chapter 5 in the Gospel of John. Jesus healed on the Sabbath. He was accused by the religious teachers of the Pharisees of breaking the law of Moses. Later on in verse 45, uh, he says that you've set your hope in Moses. In other words, Jesus was saying that they were trusting the law to give them life. Jesus says, you've pit me against Moses, but we're on the same team. Moses is the one who's actually accusing you of not receiving me. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 says a prophet, this is Moses, a prophet like me is coming from among you. He was speaking of Jesus, the greater Moses. Here in chapter 6, what happens? Beforehand, before the miracle, Jesus goes up the mountain. Moses goes up the mountain to get the law. This is on Passover. We know Moses was there the first Passover when God passed over the firstborn sons of Israel. The firstborn sons of Egypt were killed. It It was the big plague. But because of the lamb sacrifice posted and put right on the posts of their house, God passed over them. Now again, here Jesus is doing this miracle on Passover. Jesus feeds the 5,000 plus. What does Moses do? Well, in the wilderness, he fed the people manna through God's strength. And then Jesus walks on water. We'll see that in just a minute. What about Moses? Well, Moses, Moses does what? Moses leads the people of God through the Red Sea. Walking on the dry land of the ocean, Moses walks through the sea. You could see why the people exclaimed, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They got it. They saw it. This is the greater Moses. This is the fulfillment of Moses. He's done the greater bread miracle, all greater miracles. The people were witnessing something so great that verse 15, they wanted to make him king. They wanted to make him king even by force, because if Moses could lead the people out of Egypt, then surely Jesus could lead them out of the authority of Rome. You see, they wanted a political king. Of course, this is not the kind of kingship Jesus came for, and so he slipped away with his disciples. But ironically, in all of this, the people wanted him to be a king. They wanted to make him king. Jesus slips away. But ironically, in all of this, what? Jesus was already the king. Jesus was the king of kings. They called him king. He walks away. But the whole time, he really was king. He came to earth not to be a Roman Caesar. This king was far greater. This is the king who made heaven and made the earth and made everything in the earth. He was the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the ruler of all. But he came from heaven to earth in weakness. He came as a person to relate to us. But he was also divine, together fully God and fully man in order that he could die in our place on the cross and be our sacrifice. Friends, Jesus is a true king. Do you know him? At the end of the gospel, Jesus will do his greatest miracle. He'll go to the cross. He'll die as a sacrifice for our sins. And on the third day, he's going to rise from the dead. No one can forgive sins except this king alone. Do you know him? Do you know him? Have you believed in him? All of us need to. None of us are good enough to be exempt from this salvation. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You can believe today right from your seat. Just as the disciples could bring nothing to feed the people, there's nothing we can do to be saved. We can't even bring a few barley, granola bars, and anchovies to contribute to our salvation. There's nothing in our hands that we can bring to God to be saved. Nothing we can contribute. Those of us who are followers of Christ, we understand this. And yet, while we know this in our minds and hearts, and yet, while we know this to be saved— Sometimes we miss the similar point when we go out and about in ministry. Look at how Jesus prepares his disciples for ministry. He's just shown them the feeding of the 5,000 plus, but he's going to show them something else directly after. One would think that after seeing this remarkable miracle feeding the crowd thousands of people that the disciples would understand. Verse 16, it's evening time. Right after this miracle, the disciples go to sea. Uh, Without Jesus, it's dark. And verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. In verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. The other gospels help us with this account. They were rowing for hours and hours and hours. Matthew and Mark's gospel tell us that they didn't recognize Jesus at first, and even though they were experienced sailors, even before Jesus came along the scene, they were terrified. These sailors were scared. They had sailed up and down the Sea of Galilee time and time again, but they were terrified. Clearly, something extraordinary was happening here. And pretty soon they'd figure out it was Jesus. But instead of letting Jesus calm their hearts, it actually looks like they were more afraid of Jesus than they were of the storm. But Jesus stills their fears with a simple greeting, verse 20. It is I. Do not be afraid. It is I. What a beautiful phrase. That phrase, it is I, is often translated as I am. It's the divine self-affirmation. We see in Scripture that Jesus is the true and greater Moses, and Jesus is the Lord of the sea and of the waves. And then we see the immediate arrival to shore in verse 21. Isn't that, isn't that wild? Have you ever thought about that? It's apparently yet another miracle. Jesus gets on the boat and immediately, boom, they're there at the shore. Instantly. World's fastest boat trip. Jesus takes care of them. Calms the raging waters, and instantly brings them to the shore for safety. What was the solution to the disciples' stormy trial? Well, they needed to look to Jesus and trust him. Jesus was there in the midst of the chaotic storms of their lives. And friends, we know that he will be with us in the storms of our lives. You know, it's interesting that seeing the disciples face these trials reminds us that there will be storms in our lives. I mean, think about it. Following Jesus doesn't mean we'll always be happy and healthy. It doesn't mean that we'll always be wealthy and wise. It doesn't mean we'll always be safe and comfortable. The life of the Christian is not always or even often a life of earthly prosperity. There will be trials. Christians can get COVID even with the best vaccines and prayer. Christians can get sick. Christians can lose their earthly possessions. Christians can lose their jobs. Christians can face conflict. Christians can get depressed. Christians can get anxious. Christians can face temptation. Christians can be persecuted for their faith. And unless Jesus comes back first, all Christians will face death. You've likely seen the news from Afghanistan this past week. You know, what a horrifying picture of that plane trying to take off. And there's Afghans jumping, have you seen this picture? Jumping, trying to hang on, that video. There's also the picture inside of a plane. Have you seen of hundreds of Afghans all squeezed in, certainly not social distancing, all just trying to cram in just to do whatever they can to get out and get to safety? Oh, what horrifying images and videos we've seen this week. And what horrifying stories we've heard of pastors being killed. What horrifying stories we've heard of women and children being kidnapped, families being broken up, stories of people hiding for their lives all throughout the country in Kabul and beyond. All I could do at times this week is just cry out, Lord, have mercy. Lord, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. But Lord, have mercy, maybe like, Like me, you've been brokenhearted this week at the news there. Hearing these stories might make you feel helpless, like there's nothing you can do right now except to pray. But friends, I want to remind us all that prayer is not futile, that prayer works, that God has sovereignly chosen to move through the prayers of his people. And so we pray. We pray because God moves through the prayers. And while he doesn't get rid of all the storms in our timing, And while we won't be fully free of all storms until heaven, we know that Jesus is with our Afghan brothers and sisters even now. And we know that he's with each of us today. Even when the times are dark, even when we're hiding, he sees us and he sees you. Think of a dark room in a new place. You might wake up in the middle of the night. Maybe there are blackout curtains in that room, and so you get up in the middle of the night, and it's so dark you can't even see your hand in front of you. It's so dark you can't even see yourself. Even in those situations when you can't see yourself, please know that God sees you, that God sees you, that God knows every hair on your head, and God can see every hair on your head. God can see you, and he knows you. Friend, do you know this in your heart? Do you you know this? God is always with you. The other gospel accounts tell us that the disciples didn't know this because they didn't understand about the loaves and their hearts were hardened. They didn't quite get it then. And yet here, another failed test. Two failed tests at JTS. They didn't quite understand. They didn't quite get it. But Jesus is patient with them, just like he's patient with us. And Jesus is going to train the disciples and equip them just like Jesus is going to train us and equip us for life and for ministry. He's doing that because once again, there's going to be a day when Jesus wasn't going to be with them physically. And yet they would have to know in their mind and in their heart that Jesus was still with them. And so Redeemer Church, you might not see him. He might not be walking here physically, but Jesus is with us even now. Well, there's a classic story of a pastor taking a bus across his country for a teaching assignment. And the church who bought him the bus ticket asked him, why don't you just fly? It's a lot faster to just fly. That bus trip is going to take a long time. We can get you a, a plane ticket. It's faster. It's better. Well, the pastor responded. And he said, I don't fly. I don't fly because bad things happen on airplanes. And so I just don't fly. And the woman responded and said, but pastor, pastor, don't you know what the Bible says? I am always with you. That's what Jesus says. I am always with you. And the pastor said, no, you're wrong. The Bible says, low, I am always with you. (laughs) Low. Low, high. Of course, we know that God is with us everywhere. Low, high. The world is full of trouble, but Jesus is low. He's high. He's there. He's here. Jesus is everywhere. There's nowhere we can go where Jesus isn't with us. Friends, do you know that in your heart? See, we can't just know this in our minds. We have to actually look to him with our hearts, and we have to gaze at his face. Don't take your eyes off Jesus. Don't put your eyes on worldly things to give you security and comfort. Now, one of the most memorable sermons for me in the history of Redeemer Church took place on July tenth, two 2015. Let me tell you about the sermon. It was preached by our former staff member, Godly James. Raise your hand if you remember Godly. Raise your hand. Okay, lots of you remember Godly. Godly started off as an intern with us, and then he uh, directed and coordinated our children's ministry at Redeemer. I still remember meeting him in Bangalore years ago, right? Three weeks after he and his wife, Merlin, were married. He joined us now back in in Cochin. He was serving with us faithfully. He loved the church so well. He knew everybody in the church. He knew people's names. And there was just this happiness that exuded from him. But there's one thing I didn't know. I didn't know if Godly could preach. And I took the the bold ask, and on that day in July, Godly preached a sermon from the Psalms. And it was an incredible sermon, so much so that during the sermon, Gloria and I were looking at each other time and time again as if to say, wow, this is a gifted teacher. But the highlight of the sermon was an illustration in the middle of the sermon. And see, something you need to know before I get there is that Godly was deathly afraid of flying. Still doesn't like it, but he was deathly afraid of flying. At that point in his life, When he came here, he had taken one flight, and that was the flight to move here from India. And he was terrified and scared. But now he had a flight to the US, 15 hours, and he was scared. He gets enough strength, musters enough strength to get on to the airplane. But as the airplane is flying, a a flood of thoughts are going through his mind. What What if the wing just breaks off right now? What if an engine just stalls and breaks? What if the pilot dies? And all these thoughts are just rushing through Godly's mind. What's going to happen to me? And so he has all these thoughts, but thankfully he got through the flight by telling, him this, telling himself this truth over and over again. Well, wait a minute. Uh, uh, isn't this airline one of the best airlines in the world? And that means they would have the best planes in the world. And that means they would have had the best pilots in the world. And so I'm going to be okay. And guess what? Godly survived that first flight seven days in the US. But after that, he had to get back on another flight. And those same fears just kept rushing in through his heart. But this time, Godly wasn't alone. This time, Godly was with Pastor Jason Barris, who was on our church staff at that time. And so Godly felt felt good. He felt calm in his heart. He said to himself, every time I would have a fear in that airplane, all I'm going to do is just look to Jason because Jason's with me. And Jason's my elder at Redeemer Church of Dubai. And nothing bad is going to happen to me while I'm sitting next to Jason. So that was going through his mind and what he's thinking. But the plane is in the air there over the Atlantic, and the plane started making some really weird noises. It started shaking. It started making some strange sounds. And now Godly is having a panic attack. He's freaking out. His heart is beating so fast. And you know what he did in that moment? Well, he turned to the side, and he looked at Jason. But what did he see on Jason's face? That same panic the same freaked out face. And it was over there for Godly. Godly was freaked out. He almost had a heart attack at 30, 35,000 feet. But they made it. And here's Godly's point in his illustration. And you really should listen to the whole sermon. It was great. July 10, 2015. Uh, but his point was this. He says, that in my terror, I was convicted that I was looking to man to satisfy my fears, to calm them. I was looking to the world, Godly says. But, and here's the key. The only way to deal with our fears is to look to Jesus. And Godly's right. The only way to deal with our fears is to look to Jesus. You see in the Gospel of Matthew, Peter. Peter starts trying to walk on the water. Maybe you remember that story. And when Peter takes his eyes off Jesus and kind of owns it himself and, and puts his confidence in himself, what happens? Peter starts sinking. It's not until he looks again at Jesus and believes in him that he makes it hear all the disciples. Even when they recognize him, they don't recognize him as the Lord who can save them. They're panicking. Eventually, Peter cries out, Lord, save me, there in Matthew's Gospel. And that's the right answer. It's a short, but it's a robust prayer. Lord, save me. All three of those words are important. Lord, save me. Short prayer, but a robust and profound prayer. Oh, friends, we need to look to Jesus. So how are you doing today? Are you looking to Jesus? We look to Jesus, why? Well, because Jesus cares and Jesus prepares. Look to him as you read your word, as you read his word in your devotional times. And I hope you are. I hope you're looking to him as you regularly read the Bible. Look to him as you pray. Look to him as you join for corporate worship on Fridays. Don't miss this. Focus students, our university students, look to him as you study the Gospel of Mark this week. And to the rest of us, look to him as we meet with one another, one-on-one or in small groups to study the Bible together. Look to him as you listen to sermons. Look to him as you listen to music. Look to him as you read. Look to him as you rest. Look to him as you do all things. Look to him in your trials and in your triumphs. Don't take your eyes off Jesus. Look to Jesus. He provides us with all we need. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you that you are the God who provides. You care for our every need. You care for us in our trials. You care for us in our tribulations. You care for us on those hard days. You care for us on the good days. You care for us on all days. Father, you prepare us for life and ministry in this fallen world. And so today, We praise you for your provision. We thank you for this gathering here in Dubai. And as we go forth, oh, Father, would we look to your strength and not our own? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.